like almost everybody else came back for the first week. We got, what, 22? 22, I only scared two people away. That's not too bad. I try not to scare them too hard till after all the drop deadlines have passed. Then I turn into a monster, right? No. No, I stay the same. <laughs> Which is good or bad, but I stay the same. Um, assignments I have up here. Extra credit assignment is due the 29th. And that's essentially subscribing to the podcast as we talked about last time in class and then sending me an email from your Hawkmail account just saying that you've done that. So you've got till Monday to do that. A number of you have already done it. If you did it earlier, by earlier this morning, you've already got the credit. It's anybody who had done it by 7 o'clock this morning, I've already graded them all and given you, given you your 10 points. So if not, go ahead and do what you still got through the weekend and through next Monday. I'll remind you on Monday as well. The sample quiz is up and available on Blackboard. So you can go and take a look at that. Uh, I think in this class a number of like five or six people already had, so a number of people had already gone through it. It was meant to be just a sample quiz. I mean, I asked questions about the class and I asked some very basic questions about astronomy. But it's not graded. It grades it, but it's not graded. It doesn't add into your grade. So if you just click through all A's and you feel comfortable doing it, if you feel comfortable taking the quiz anyway, you don't even need to go do that. It's just for those people who weren't sure on taking a quiz on WebCT, on Blackboard, what it was going to be like, you have the opportunity to go in it. I've left it open all semester. So I said it's available through the 28th, but it's, it's there. If you ever want to go back into it, you can, if you want to do it again. The one thing I missed on it is that I did not put on any questions that had diagrams. Because I kept trying, and, if, and I did it like six different times, and for some reasons the diagrams, which have always worked for me before, weren't working. So I gave up and... Until I do get that working, your quizzes will not have any diagrams, or I will put a separate like PDF or JPEG file of the diagram and refer you to that in the quiz and say, look at the diagram and go and open it. So if I have to do a diagram one, I'll put the picture separately because I know people have had issues before sometimes with, depending on your internet connection and your set browser settings, sometimes the pictures get blocked and makes it very hard to answer a question referring to a diagram if you can't see the diagram. It's kind of just in a guess. A, B, C, or D, which one? And you got a one in four chance or one in five chance depending on how many answers I gave you. So the first quiz will be available starting Monday. At some point Monday I'll have it up. And again, you don't need to rush and take it then because it's going to cover chapter zero and one. So you may want to wait closer to the end of the week. It's up there for you. If you want to take it on Monday, go ahead. But you only get one try on that one. You can't go back into it. So if you take it on Monday and get frustrated because you didn't know half the answers, I'm warning you, you're not gonna, I'm not going to have gone over all of the material probably till closer to the end of the week. So you may want to wait and take it that weekend, but it's available the entire week for you. And then homework one is due next Friday, which again is chapter zero and primarily chapter zero, probably a little bit of chapter one. So any questions on that? No? Nope. We're all wide awake and ready to go, right? All right. That's what I like to hear. Okay. Picture of the day today, August 26th. Well, we got a spiral galaxy there. Can you see the spiral galaxy a little bit? That's not actually what we're looking at. This is actually called the pinwheel galaxy. It's a very pretty spiral galaxy. If you get the whole thing, and especially in enhanced images, you get a very, very pretty spiral arms. Centers up, the galaxy is up here. And you have some very nice spiral arms coming off. But no, what we're actually looking at is a little arrow pointing to this object named PTF11KLY. 
You're going to remember that name, right? No, probably not. It's a catalog number. Astronomers tend to use catalogs because they are cataloged so many thousands and thousands of objects and galaxies and stars and nebulae that they tend to use a catalog naming just for convenience for being able to find them. You couldn't come up with enough different names to try to be able to name, name everything. The only things that get real names are things like craters on the moon usually get names, asteroids and comets usually get names. Comets you get, you get to name, if you discover it, you get to name it. Get named after you. So if you actually discover a comet, you get to name it after yourself. But this is actually a star in this galaxy. And it's actually a supernova. So it's a supernova that's just been very recently discovered and discovered in the process of exploding. So they actually caught it very, very early. Now a supernova is a star at the end of its life that, is, that explodes. It becomes unstable and explodes. And it becomes brighter. Many of them will become brighter and out, some of them can be brighter and outshine the entire galaxy. So that one star can be producing temporarily more energy than all the stars in the galaxy normally do at one time. So it's an extremely energetic explosion. And this one is actually from a star that it's called a type 1 supernova. Astronomers like to number things too, so there's two types of supernova, type 1, type 2. We'll come back to them later in the semester. But type 1 is a compact star, so it's an old dead remnant of a star that's left over. And what happens is it got a little bit too much mass and it became unstable and it just tore itself completely apart. So this star is in the process of just ripping itself completely to pieces. And those are very interesting and very give us a lot of information because they tell us they're all the same. Bless you. They, they're all the same. They're all exactly the same type of star that blew up. And because they're exactly the same, they all get exactly the same brightness. So we can use that, and we'll talk about distances in astronomy coming up. So we're hitting this a little bit earlier. It would have been a nice picture for the closer to the end of the term. So we're jumping ahead a little. But we can use that to determine distances to the galaxies. This one is especially interesting because this is actually a very close galaxy. This one's only 21 million light years away. Wow. Far away, right? But, but in, in galaxy terms, that's very close. The nearest galaxy, Andromeda, is about 2 million. So this is only about 10 times further. We're not talking about the most distant galaxies that we want to use these to determine distances to that could be hundreds of millions of light years or a billion light years away. So it is very close in that effect. And we've learned using these supernovae in those distant galaxies, we've learned something about what the universe is doing. And for Many years, we always thought the universe is expanding. You may have heard the universe is expanding, the Big Bang and all that. We always thought it was slowing down. Gravity was pulling things back together slowly. Whether it would ever stop was a big question. But it would, everything was expanding, but it was expanding slower. Using these supernovae over the last 10 years or so, we found out that the universe is actually moving faster. So it's actually accelerating faster now than it was before. So, this type of supernova is actually something we will come back and talk about way at the end of the semester, probably into late November, early December. But we'll come back and we'll talk about these a lot more. But that was our picture for today. But it's a new one that was just recently discovered. And I said, what was it, 21, 21 million light years away. So, but a very pretty spiral galaxy overall. And you can get, we'll get much better pictures of that probably to see later on.
So, questions on that? No, no, I know. You're stuck here for two hours today, I know. At least I won't talk for all two hours. I'll try not to. So. All right, let's go ahead and finish up. We should be able to finish up chapter zero. No, we don't want to go back to the beginning. You don't want to hear that all again. All right, so, and again, these are up, the, the lecture slides are up on WebCT, so you'll be able to get them and print them out if you like. And I will put chapter one up sometime either later today or this weekend. I'll try to have chapter one available so you'll have them if you want to print them out this weekend and have them for Monday, then you can have them with you then. But this was a slide we finished up with last time. We were talking about the Earth's orbital motion. And we talked about a number of terms. The ecliptic was one of them. The ecliptic is the plane of the Earth's path around the sun and I told you that the easier way to think about that was that the ecliptic was the path that the sun appears to take on the sky. So the ecliptic that we looked at in the previous slide, the ecliptic was just the path that the sun appeared to take on the sky. And it went through this set of constellations we called the constellations of the zodiac. So it went through those, that set of constellations. And it's tilted at that 23 and a half degrees. So the sun can go from its northernmost point, which is high above the celestial equator, the equator of the Earth projected out to the sky, and that's what we call the summer solstice. So the sun gets higher and higher in the sky during the spring, reaches its peak on June 21st. That's when it's highest in the sky. And then goes back down. So all summer the sun is getting lower and lower in the sky. So why isn't June 21st the hottest day of the year? But it's the, high, the highest is that day. What's, what's, what else is, what else is going to be different? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Mm, probably wouldn't change that much, no. Distance, yeah, but we're actually we're, we're furthest from the sun in July, so that doesn't help. It's actually just a, t a time effect. It just take it takes some time for the Earth. To, the Earth was cold, right? So it's just taking a time to warm. So that may be the highest the sun is in the sky, and it might be the longest day of the year, longest amount of daylight. But it still takes a time. So through July and August, then it starts to get hotter and hotter. When you get all of those relatively long days and days with the sun relatively high in the sky then it takes a little time. And the same thing happens in winter. The sun's lowest in the sky on the winter solstice. December, 30, December 31st, December 21st or so, plus or minus a day. But that's usually not the coldest day of the year. Usually gets a lot colder into January and February because this is, it was so hot in the summer and now it takes some time for it to cool off. So, and I just answered one of your questions for your write-up for your uh, solar observations for the end of the semester. So. So you have no excuse to get it wrong. And then the points where we cross in between are the vernal and autumnal equinoxes. So vernal equinox is fancy name for the first day of spring, March 21st, plus or minus a day. And autumnal equinox, first day of autumn, first day of fall, coming up here in a few weeks. So those are just the four points. There's the highest point, the lowest point of the sun, and the two points where it crosses. So these are the two points where the day is 12 hours a day and 12 hours of night. 
So we still have a little bit longer days now, a little more than 12 hours. It's going to be a little bit lesser by the end of the term, right? It'll start, it won't start getting bright and light until you know, 8 o'clock in the morning or so. And it'll start getting dark at you know, 6 o'clock instead of being light till 8 or 9 or something as it is in the summer. Now I sort of skipped over that last time, so I wanted to jump back and do that because I knew that would take a little bit more time than we had. The seasons are caused by that tilt. And we mentioned that last time. I told you the sun is actually closest, or the earth is actually closest to the sun in January and furthest from the sun in July. So that has nothing to do with the seasons. It might accentuate the seasons a little bit, but it tends to moderate them in the northern hemisphere. Because right, we're closest to the sun in January, so we'd be a little bit closer, so it would make us warmer in winter and cooler in summer, and it would tend to make a little bit more extreme in the southern hemisphere, being closer to the sun in their summer and further away in their winter. But it really isn't a big enough difference in distance to really matter. And then the time are the years. So the time from one vernal equinox to the next is what we call the tropical year. So we'll see a couple different years here. We had a couple different days we talked about last time. There's a couple different years too. So going from, going from vernal equinox to vernal equinox is relative to the distant stars in the sky, not relative. So it's not the same as our calendar year. Another motion of the Earth. And we talked about all the mo- we talked a lot about how the Earth was moving, but the Earth is moving all over the place. I mean, you don't notice it. But again, we're spinning on our axis. We're moving around the sun. The whole solar system is moving around the galaxy. The whole galaxy is moving. But not only that, but the Earth is also wobbling. Now this is a much slower motion, and we call it precession. But it is actually the pole of the Earth's axis points at 23.5 degrees, right? We've heard that number, 23.5 degrees. So we're not, our axis doesn't point straight up and down. It points a little bit to an angle, about 23 degrees worth. Over time, that actually, the angle doesn't change much, but the direction changes. So like when you spin a top, you see a top spin, what happens? It sort of goes around in a big circle much slower than it's actually spinning. So the Earth spins once a day, once every 23 hours and 56 minutes, right? But this takes 26,000 years. So it takes a long time. But it does, it does cause major headaches for astronomers because it's moving even only once every 26,000 years. Essentially, we're changing, that's changing where the pole, North Pole of the sky is. So it changes the entire coordinate system every day. Not by much. We went through all those angles last time. It's by many fractions of an arc second. But over 40 and 50 years, it can throw off all the coordinates. It can be enough to change them by you know, an arc second or two. It can change them significantly. So that when you're trying to point a very big telescope to a specific point, you have to know exactly not only what star you're looking for and what the coordinates are, the right ascension, the declination we talked about last time, but you have to know what year those right ascension and declination were for. So astronomers usually do it. It used to be 1950, then they switched to 2000. Because if you want to print a catalog, especially older, you know, nowadays you can do an updated catalog, it's a lot easier. But previously, they would print you know, big paper catalogs of where the stars were. Well, you had to tell everybody what year the coordinates were for. 
Because if someone thought they were 1900 and someone thought they were 2000 and they were actually 1950, everybody's going to be looking in slightly the wrong spot. Not a big difference, but when you're trying to point a big, giant, five meter across telescope someplace, you need to be able to point it very accurately. So that's one of the problems which precession does. It's changing the actual position of the pole. So if we are here, about now, we're very close to Polaris. That means hundreds of years from now, thousands of years from now, Polaris won't be the North Star anymore. That's slowly changing. In the year one, it was back about here. Now we're right about here. So that would be what, 2000? So right now we're getting pretty close, about as close as we can to the pole star. But over the next couple thousand years, then that pole star will be, Polaris will get further and further away. And there'll be some stretches, you know, where there's, you know, over here. Yeah, I know that's 20,000 years from now and most of us won't be around. But 20,000 years from now, there won't be any star anywhere near the pole. Sort of like the southern hemisphere is now. So it actually changes. It changes not only, but not only does it change the pole star, which is you know, more of a convenience for us looking. We can find out where north is by finding the Big Dipper and then using the pointers. You find the Big Dipper, use the pointers, and point to the pole star. You won't be able to do that. You know, 20,000 years from now, that won't be an option. Of course, 20,000 years from now, our technology should be significantly more advanced that it shouldn't even matter. But you can think of what it would have been. You know, Thousands of years ago, you wouldn't have had the pole star as an example to use that to use to get, to, the, to get there. But that's what precession is doing. It's just that wobbling of the top. So it's just slowly wobbling and it just goes around. And the Earth is wobbling just like that top but on a very, very slow cycle of 26,000 years. Okay, then the years. The time it takes the Earth to orbit once around the Sun relative to the stars is what we call the sidereal year. So there's a sidereal year and a tropical year. This is relative to the stars, that's sidereal. That's the 365 and a quarter days, or 365.2422, depending on how exact you want to get. But that's how long it takes the Earth physically relative to the distant stars to go around the sun once. The tropical year is a little bit different. It follows the seasons, because the seasons change. So, for example, because of that precession. So in 13,000 years, half of a precession cycle from now, according to the tropical year, July and August will still be summer. But Orion will be visible. And if you've looked at Orion, if you've been able to see Orion right now, Orion is a winter constellation. It's visible in January. So because of that precession and all the coordinates changing, Orion will now be visible in the summer. It'll come back in 13,000 years. Come back to class, we'll all be here, right? And Orion will be visible in the summer. So you won't have to get out at night when it's you know, 10 below and freezing to try to go see Orion. You'll be able to go see Orion in the middle of the summer. But then if you want to see summer constellations, such as Scorpius and Sagittarius and the Summer Triangle, some other bright summer constellations, you're going to have to get up in the middle of winter. Get out in the middle of winter to see them. So there's two different years. We had two different days. We got two different years as well. All right, so that's the Earth. And again, as I said, this is, we do breeze through a lot of it in this class. So I'm just giving you a very basic overview of what we have here. The, the other class takes two, 
think, two weeks to go through this, uh, this type of material. But you've got a lot more stuff to cover later on. So. The moon. So the moon moves too. So the moon is moving around the Earth. And it has a couple of different cycles as well. So everything has a couple of different periods. So when we ask how long it takes the moon to go around the sun, or how moon to go around the sun, the moon goes around the Earth, not around the sun. So how long it takes the moon to go around the Earth, it takes it 27.3 days. That says 29, right? Okay, that's the cycle of the phases. The phase cycle is 29.5 days. That's what we call the synodic month. So when we go from full moon, and if you watch the moon over the course of the month, and come back again 29 and a half days later, you see a full moon again. But that's not how long it takes the moon to go around the Earth. It takes the moon only 27 days to go around the Earth. And if you remember last time I talked about how the Earth rotated on its axis every 23 hours and 56 minutes, but the day was still 24 hours, it's the same thing with the moon. It only takes it 27 days to go back around, but because the whole Earth-Moon has moved around the sun by quite a significant amount in a month, one-twelfth of the way around the sun, that's essentially a month, so one-twelfth of a year, it's moved. Now it takes it even longer for the Moon to rotate back and become full again. So if the cycle phase is 29 and a half days, but the actual orbital period is 27 days. Now the phases of the moon that we see here are full moon, we know, right? Full moon, first quarter. First quarter is the one you see in the evening. Third quarter is the one you see in the morning. It doesn't rise till about midnight. So if you see a quarter moon, unless you're up really early in the morning, then it's usually a first quarter moon if you're seeing it in the evening time. And then we'll also see crescent phases. Crescent phases are here. It's called a waxing crescent. On this side, as you're moving from new moon to first quarter, it's called a waxing crescent. Waxing just means it's getting bigger. So it's a waxing crescent. And then on the other side, when you go from third quarter to new moon, it's getting smaller. It's called a waning crescent. So both are crescent phases, but this is the one you see in the evening. And the waning crescent is the one you see early in the morning, right before sunrise. So this one you'd see shortly after sunset. That one you'd see shortly before sunrise. This you'd see nicely in the evening. That you'd see in the morning sky, early morning sky. Full moon you'd see. If it's the full full moon, you only can see it after the sun sets. Because it's exactly opposite to the sun in the sky. So if the sun is just setting in the sky, the full moon would just be rising. And the other phase is they call a gibbous phase. Which are these, and gibbous is just in between, it's more than half full, but not quite full. So you have, those are the different phases. You've got the, and well, I left one off. The one you can't see, new moon. So it's when it goes back around the cycle and the cycle starts all over again, we call that a new moon. But a new moon is not visible from the Earth because the whole illuminated side of the moon is facing the sun and it's in between the sun and the Earth. So what else could happen there? Any ideas? Eclipse. That would be the time a solar eclipse would occur. The only time a solar eclipse could occur. So if it's not a new moon, you're not going to get a solar eclipse. Eclipses are coming up in a couple slides here. We'll talk about those in more detail coming up. And conversely, a full moon 
is the only time you could possibly get a lunar eclipse. So you'll never get an eclipse at any of these other times. It has to be only at the time of new moon or the time of full moon. Those are the only times we can possibly get eclipses. So that's again, that's the motion. That's what we're talking about here. The picture here shows that it's showing you that the moon is tilted a little bit. The moon's orbit isn't exactly flat in the plane with the sun. It's tilted by about five degrees. So that means sometimes it's way above the sun and sometimes it's way below the sun. And we'll come back to some picture like this before because if the full moon occurs here, can you see we don't get an eclipse? Because there's the Earth's shadow, but the moon is going to pass right below it. Or it could conversely, if, if everything's oriented the other way, it might pass right above it. So you only get eclipses when things are exactly right. Only when the moon is full, a lunar eclipse, and it's exactly at the right angle to pass through the Earth's shadow. So that's one of the reasons we don't see very many eclipses. And in fact, I have a slide coming up towards the end of this that actually shows you the number of the eclipses for 20 years. And you can look at them all on a map very easily, the number of good solar eclipses for 20 years. Come on. Okay. Doesn't want to work for me again. So let's look a little bit more detail about the eclipses. But for a lunar eclipse, we've talked a little bit about this, we need a couple different things. First of all, we need the Earth in between the moon and the sun, which means it has to be a full moon. So the Earth is here, the sun is here, the moon is opposite. That means normally the moon would be fully illuminated. We'd see the whole illuminated side. And it has to be at that right angle as we looked at last time. So it could be, think of this three-dimensionally, the moon could be up here, it could be down inside the screen, beyond the screen. And in that, those cases, if it doesn't pass through the Earth's shadow, you're never going to see it. Now, have anyone seen a lunar eclipse? We had one a little while ago. You've seen one? A couple people have? Good. The moon doesn't completely disappear, right? You've seen it a total. It looks at, it starts to disappear and looks like it's disappearing. And then all of a sudden, as you get to the total part, it, appears back and it says blood red. I mean really dark deep red. So it doesn't quite disappear and one of the, the reason for that is that we got an atmosphere. It's the Earth's atmosphere bends some of the light through and it reflects, still reflects to the moon. So if the Earth had no atmosphere, the moon would, be completely dis would completely disappear and would be gone. But because we have an atmosphere, some of that light gets bent through and the red light gets bent and it's easier to get through. The blue light gets scattered too much, but the red light comes through and actually illuminates the moon. Same way when you look at a sunset, what color is the sun? Blue, right? Red. So when you look at a sunset, the sun looks red because the red light is the one that can come through all that atmosphere and make it through. All the blue light is getting scattered out and absorbed and coming out there now. It comes through the entire sky. That's why the sky looks blue. So the entire sky looks blue because all the blue light from all those sunsets and other parts are coming up and scattering down to us. And then the light that actually makes it through at sunset, when it is sunset for us here, is the redder light. Now there's a couple different kinds of lunar eclipses. Lunar eclipses are a little simpler than total eclipses, I mean, than solar eclipses. There's essentially two kinds you can, well, there's technically three, but really only two that matter. So there's a partial eclipse where part of the moon is in the shadow. Now if you see a partial lunar eclipse, it may just, you know, the Earth's shadow may only come through part of it at the maximum. 
So it might not block out the entire moon. A total lunar eclipse, the entire moon would move into the Earth's shadow. So the entire moon would be this deep red. So in a partial eclipse, you'd just kind of block out part of the moon and not really be able to see it. In a total eclipse, when the entire thing is in the shadow, then you would not. There's one other eclipse. eclipse. This, is the, this shadow is called the umbra, U-M-B-R-A, of the Earth, the dark shadow. There's a penumbra around it. And you can actually have the moon go through that part, which is a lot wider. And it's part of the sun is blocked, but not completely. The moon would get a little bit fainter, but not something that you'd notice to your naked eye. You could have to make measurements of it. So it wouldn't be anything spectacular. So if you hear, hear there's going to be a penumbral lunar eclipse, don't go staying up late to see it. It's, not, it's no big deal. You're not going to notice anything. But a total lunar eclipse, which I think now we're we're waiting a few more years for a good one around here. I think it's not for another two or three years. So nothing during this class. Sorry, you took it the wrong. No solar eclipses for a few years here either. But those are the different types of lunar eclipses. And this is determined to be. OK. Solar eclipse is the opposite. The moon is between the Earth and the sun. So the Earth is here, the Moon is here, and the Sun is here. And now you see all the shadows shown here. So the Moon then will cast a shadow out into space. And if everything is lined up just right, then that shadow will land on the Earth. Now the Moon is much smaller than the Earth is. So it doesn't cast as big of a shadow. The Earth casts a very big shadow out there to easily block out the Moon. The Moon casts a very little shadow. So the shadow on the surface of the Earth may only be a few miles wide. So one of the reasons that you've seen that, has anybody seen a solar eclipse? No? No? Is that they're not, as, they're not as common. They only occur at very, very specific areas on the Earth. That doesn't mean they can occur any place, but each one is only going to occur in a very narrow range. You know, maybe five, ten miles wide. And if you're not on that exact path, you won't see a total solar eclipse. Now off that, you will see a partial. And a partial solar eclipse is much easier to see. But that's where you're just mark marking off part of the sun. And it's not, not as beautiful of a sight. I mean, it's nice, interesting to see. You still don't want to stare at it, because that will hurt your eyes. But you will, the moon will pass by and block out. Now the moon has no atmosphere, so it completely blocks out the sun. So when the moon passes in front of the sun, whatever part of it goes completely dark. Now if you get a, so that's a partial eclipse. So if you're further out, further away from this dark, dark part of the shadow, you get a partial. If you're at the total, if you're right on that path, if you're lucky enough to be there or traveled to there, yes, ma'am? Um, is, it, is it only one specific area of the world that a solar eclipse can occur? I know you said Each solar eclipse, yes. But, any, but a solar eclipse can occur any place. Okay. So it could occur through Harrisburg. I know there's not one coming through here in a long time. And not just in the next 20 or 30 years. I mean, it's, I don't remember. It's further out than that. I'd have to look up to be sure. But no, they can occur any place on the surface of the Earth. And I'll show you a map of them at the end with some of the ones coming up. But if you're exactly on that path of totality, so exactly in that dark shadow, then the moon passes right in front of the sun, and the sun is completely blocked out. And it will get completely dark. It'll get dark like nighttime. 
there's no light coming. All the, all the light has been blocked by the moon. It will get dark. And I say, if you ever have the chance to see one, you'll hear, you know, the crickets will start coming out and the automatic street lights will come on and everything, you know, it's, it's nighttime. The moon is completely blocked, the sun is completely blocked out by the moon. And you will see there is part of the sun still visible. We're blocking off the whole surface of the sun. But there's outer parts of the sun called the corona, which is the outer atmosphere of the sun, which is much, much fainter than the rest of the sun. And we can see that during a total eclipse. So we blocked off the, the brightest part of the sun, so now we can see these fainter parts that are not normally visible to the naked eye. We can't normally study them. So hundreds of years ago, that was the only way to study a study the corona was to wait for an eclipse or have an eclipse expedition. You go travel, you know where the eclipse is going to occur, so you go travel to where it is. And a lot of people will do that in order to make observations or just to go to see an eclipse. You know, if there's one occurring, there's 2000 and I'll show you the date in a minute. There's one coming up in the next 10 years. There's one that's in North America that goes like across the United States. So that's easy enough to go travel. You know, if you want to see a solar eclipse, you can travel to the area where it's going to occur. But there are, they'll do, like if you look at astronomy or sky and telescope, anytime there's a big solar eclipse, like out in the Pacific, there'll also be an eclipse cruise. That if you want to spend three or four thousand dollars to go per person to go see the eclipse, you can go travel and the boat will take you right to the path of the eclipse. Of course, you're still at the mercy of the weather. That's the other thing, you know. The solar eclipse isn't going to wait for the weather to clear. It's going to occur when it's going to occur. It's not going to make any difference. So the nice thing with being on a boat is at least they can make some adjustments. They can travel further up or down if that helps. Whereas when you're here, that's a little bit, if it starts raining at the last minute, you're kind of stuck. You can't drive too far to get, can't move fast enough to get to the eclipse. And I'm sure they don't refund you either if the eclipse was rained out. So. But, so that's a solar eclipse. Now the one you can get in a solar eclipse that you cannot get in a lunar is what we call an annular eclipse. An annular eclipse occurs because of this interesting coincidence that the sun and the moon are almost exactly the same size in the sky. Remember I talked about last time they're both about half a degree. So they're almost exactly the same size. But the moon's orbit around the earth is elliptical, meaning that sometimes it's a little bit closer, sometimes it's a little bit further away. Means that sometimes the moon is a little bit bigger than the sun, and sometimes it appears a little bit smaller than the sun. So if it's at its furthest when the eclipse occurs, it might not be quite big enough to cover the sun. So you actually get what we call an annular eclipse and it forms a ring. So you would actually get the moon in front and a complete ring of the sun around it. So when the eclipse occurs at the furthest distance of the moon, then that would happen. If it occurs at the closer distances, then the moon would completely block it out and then you would be able to see the corona. If this happens, you don't get that complete darkness, you don't get to see the corona, but you get this ring of sunlight, which would be very interesting to see as well. Okay. So, again, most of this I've already told you, I think. A solar eclipse is partial when only part of the sun is blocked, and total when it is all blocked. So if it's completely, if it's completely blocked, that's a total eclipse, and that's when you see the corona like the image here. So the entire surface of the sun, the main surface of the sun that you're used to seeing, if you see the sun at sunset, you know, when you can actually see it a little bit better, that's actually blocked out by the moon here. And then we can see this outer atmosphere of the sun. When it's further away, 
then you get an annular eclipse. So if the moon is too far away, that it appears a little bit smaller. And it doesn't take much because they are almost exactly the same size. So if it occurs a little when it's a little bit further away from the Earth, then you have that, the fact that it's a little bit smaller. And then you'll see that ring of sunlight, but the corona will disappear. It's still there. We just can't see it. It's too bright. Sort of like the stars are there right now. We just can't see them. That works. Okay. Why do eclipses not occur every month? I mean, if everything were perfect, an eclipse could occur every single month. And, you know, thousands of years ago, people wouldn't have been terrified when the sun disappeared. You know, even for only seven minutes, it would be a terrifying thing. If you don't know what's going on, it would be a terrifying thing. Where is the sun going? But they also make them even more rare is that the moon is tilted. I told you its orbit is tilted by about five degrees. So that means if the new moon occurs in this part of the orbit, you're not going to see an eclipse. The moon, the, the moon shadow might pass above or below the Earth, or the full moon might pass above or below the Earth's shadow, and you won't get an eclipse at all. And even all, most of the way around here, it's only this very small area which is called the line of nodes. I don't think I gave it to you on here, but it's called the line of nodes. And that's where everything is lined up. So the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun can all be lined up. But you have to have the new or full Moon occur at that time. So if you're all lined up here, and this is you know, first quarter Moon, you're out of luck. You've got to get everything lined up, and you've got to have the right phase of the Moon. So you've got to have the right phasing at the same time. So it's quite possible that you could be close and not even, still not be able to see the eclipse. And that's why we don't get eclipses very often. There's, there are usually, there's usually at least one solar, one to two solar eclipses a year and usually a lunar eclipse a year of some kind. Now many of those, as I said, are not very, those could be partial eclipses. They aren't the big nice ones that everybody wants to see. It's not a total lunar eclipse that you want to see where the moon becomes that blood red. It's not a total solar eclipse where the sun is completely blocked out. But there are a couple eclipses that will occur each year. But that doesn't mean they're necessarily visible from where you are. So, you know, solar eclipses may occur. You know, we could have a solar eclipse tomorrow, depending on the phase of the moon, but you could have a solar eclipse tomorrow, but if it's only visible over in Europe and Asia, it doesn't do us any good. I don't think Hack's paying us for a field trip to see the eclipse. You try, but I don't think they'll go for it. And why that doesn't like me, or just likes me intermittently. But here's the eclipses. These are the eclipses, the good solar eclipses for about 20 years worth. From about, from 2010 through 2030. So you see there's two, there's two of them that are good for us here. There's two nice ones that come across North America. August of 2017, six years from now. And April of 2024. That one's even a little bit better for us because that comes right over through like southern Michigan and western Ohio, still a little bit to the west of us, but not too, not too far. But there are a couple nice ones there that are coming. But you see that over 20 years, look what portion of the Earth actually gets to see an eclipse. Solar eclipse, not lunar eclipses. But there isn't a lot of it. I mean, all of Russia gets one little tiny bit of eclipse hiding up there in upper Siberia where probably nobody wants to go. And that's all they have in that 20 years. So we're lucky to get two going across. Canada gets a little bit of this partial, this total one. We'll have a little bit there. You know, Africa's got one going across the north and one. Australia has a couple, but no, nothing has a lot. If you're in Japan, you're out of luck, right? 
Got one that comes close, but not right there. Now those are the paths where it would be a total eclipse. The partial eclipse, you would be able to see a much wider range. So if this is where the total eclipse occurs, your partial eclipse would be something up like that. So actually for this one in 2017, most of the United States would be able to see that eclipse. So even here in Harrisburg, you're not going to see a total eclipse because it looks like it goes down through, oh, where, through South Carolina or something. You know, further down, South Carolina, Georgia area goes down a little bit further south. But you would be able to see a partial solar eclipse here. And again, those are easy enough to observe. You do need special filters if you're going to look at the sun. You know, sunglasses don't work because they don't filter out enough of, the, enough of the dangerous light. And there's so much coming from the sun. But you can get special filters or you can use projection equipment. You can project things using like what they call a pinhole camera where you get a whole pinhole in a piece of cardboard and you project it. If you've ever done that, you can actually project it. Yeah? Okay. Okay. And they do that and they usually give you all those warnings whenever an eclipse is, is near. So I'm sure we'll hear all about them in 2017 when the eclipses are are coming close. But yeah, you can use that. That's another thing you can use to watch it on the ground safely. Because the dangerous thing about the eclipse is the sun is really just as dangerous all the time. It's not any more dangerous during an eclipse to look at. The danger is that when it's during an eclipse, especially as it gets close to being fully covered, is it doesn't hurt your eyes to look at it. So you can actually stare at it now. If you try to stare at the sun right now, it's kind of hard to do. You look away instinctively because it, it's bright and it hurts you. But when even a little bit of that surface of the sun is visible, you can actually, then you can look, when it's only a little bit visible, you can actually look at it. And you stare for a long time, but that will still burn its image into the back of your eye. So that's why they tell you not to look at an eclipse. It's not that it's any more dangerous during an eclipse. It's just that it's easier to look at. You can, and there's more of a reason for people to look at it because, oh, there's an eclipse going on. Oh, that doesn't hurt to look at it until you realize later that you've damaged the back of your eye. But those are the eclipses for 20 years, or at least the solar eclipses. Now the lunar eclipses are nice in that when a lunar eclipse occurs, half the world gets to see it. Because wherever it's dark, you get to see the lunar eclipses. The moon goes into the Earth's shadow, it doesn't matter where you are on the Earth, as long as it's nighttime at the time. So if lunar, if lunar eclipse occurs right now, we're out of luck. We're not going to see it. But if a lunar eclipse were to occur tonight, which it isn't, you know, we'd be able to, anybody, where it's clear, hey, we got a clear day for once, we can actually go see, you could actually go see it before the hurricane gets in and makes it rainy again, right? So, but anyone can see a lunar eclipse. Okay, on to distances. So that's just a brief overview of the moon and eclipses. Distances is one of the things that we're going to be coming back to. So I'm going to talk about distances here. And when we come to the next to last chapter, I'll still be talking about distances. Distances are one of the most important things in astronomy and one of the hardest things to measure. You know, it's very easy to measure distances on Earth. We can take a tape measure and measure something if I want to measure how far it is. You, know, you can get a little, you could, if you're driving in your car, you can use your odometer and say, okay, how far, how many miles did I travel? It's very easy to do. Measuring distances to the moon, it's a lot harder. Can't take a tape measure to the moon. Well, we can in a way because we use things called like a radar signal. You can bounce off it, but that works for the moon and maybe Venus. It doesn't work for anything else. One way we use to get distances, and this is the example on Earth, is called triangulation. So you're essentially measuring, 
you can measure your baseline. So you have two observers here observing this tree across the stream. And if you can measure the distance between them, and this observer measures the angle for the tree, you can use trigonometry to be able to do the calculation. I'm not asking you to do it, I'm just giving you the idea. You just could, but you could. If I give you that information, you can do it. In fact, it's sort of what you're doing reverse, and I'll go over that later, on the solar observations. Because in that case, you're trying to figure out the angle, but you know this side and this side of the triangle. So it's the same kind of thing. Here you don't know that distance, you're trying to find it. So you could actually, if you knew the altitude of the sun on your solar observations, you could find the height of your object. So you could work backwards. But it's the same kind of thing. If we measure this baseline and this angle, then I can calculate the rest of the triangle and I can tell you how far away that object is from each of the observers. And we do the same kind of thing in astronomy. If I'm remembering right, yep. Except we call it, instead of triangulation, we call it parallax. So the parallax angle, we look at an object nearby, a nearby object relative to more distant objects. And it will appear to move when you look at an object from two different vantage points. And you may have done a similar thing yourself if you ever hold your, hold your finger out and alternate blinking your eyes. It points at a different spot. It's moving relative to those because you're looking at it from distances that are a few centimeters apart. So you're looking at it once from here and it's slightly this way, and you're looking at it once from here and it's slightly this way, and it appears to move a little bit. Parallax is the same kind of effect. If you were to look at, from one side of the Earth, have a telescope observing this star, and an observer on the other side of the Earth observing it, then they are, what, about 15,000 miles apart? And then this nearby object is going to appear to be in one position against the stars for one and another position against the stars for another. Only problem is that won't quite work because that dist- astro- astronomical distances are too big and that won't work. That's not big enough distance. We need a bigger distance than the diameter of the Earth. So what can we get that's bigger than the diameter of the Earth that we can observe? Without going to the moon either. But Any idea? The sun? Using the sun in a way. Using the Earth's orbit around the sun. Because if we're here right now, where is the Earth going to be in six months? It's going to be two astronomical units away from where it is right now without us doing anything. So we could make an observation now and take a picture of this sky. And we could come back six months later and take a picture of the sky and see how much things have moved. Even doing that, Remember all those little angles I talked about last time, right? We had the degrees, and we divided each degree into 60 parts, and we divided each of them, those were arc minutes, and we divided each arc minute into 50 parts, and those are arc seconds. The closest star, other than the sun, would have a parallax of three quarters of one arc second. So take the degree, divide it into 3,600 parts, and you've got less than one of those is the little angle you're trying to measure. So astronomers, and that's the closest star. Things further away are going to be even more, even smaller. The further away they are, the less that angle gets. So it's very hard to measure distances just because things get so far away. And the angles get so small, eventually it gets to the point where we're trying to measure, you know, a thousandth of an arc second. So it only works for the nearest stars within our galaxy. But it is one method, and it's our first method of being able to determine distances. Okay. 
And I say, we'll come back to distances over and over again. And you know what? We're almost 10 of, aren't we? Um, let me see. Let me see what I have left here. Let me go ahead and break here. I'll finish this. Uh, we'll, we'll do the lab after. I'm going to go ahead and give you a break. I usually break the class. You can take your 10 minutes in between if you need to use the restroom, get a drink, whatever. And then I'll break it and then come back and I'll go over. Maybe what I'll do is I'll go over a little bit of this as an introduction to the lab and then I'll finish this up on Monday. But instead of me trying to finish it and run through, I don't think I'll get through it in five minutes. So I'll go ahead and give you a break now and then we'll come back. Come back at 10 and we'll start all over again. All right. Ready, ready to go again, I know. Two hours worth of class. Could be worse though. I've taken classes where you meet for like three or four hours at once and it gets to be hard. I notice my voice feeling it after doing two straight hours right now. I'm still, ugh. After teaching online all summer and not having to <laughs> do that. I am gonna, don't, I'm going to go over this first, so don't, don't try to start it yet. Three, four, go. But this is actually just a little lab on scientific methods. Oops, we're missing one here still, right? Okay, there you go. Okay. And I should, someone asked me during the break about the textbooks. The textbooks are over there under the virtual campus. You can use the virtual campus one is the same. I looked, there were like 13 or 14 copies of it. Still, most of them were used too, so, which is good. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can probably get them a lot cheaper elsewhere too. But I say if somebody's desperate to get one, they, they are there. You just have to, for some reason, when we sent the orders through, the virtual campus orders went through, and the Harrisburg campus ones got, they're still stuck in limbo someplace. So we'll probably get a bunch of books, you know, in October or something. <laughs> Which won't do us a lot of good. But yeah, you can get them on Amazon. If you're looking for the older edition, you can probably buy a previous edition for, you know, five or ten bucks or less, too, if you want. But. And I'm not sure, I didn't look at what the pricing was, but I did go over there and see that yes, they do at least have some. You just got to jiggle through to see which ones are matching up. But it is, this, as long as you're getting the same textbook, the Beginner's Guide to the Universe one, don't get the Solar System one, which is the only, there's that one and there's a 21st Century Astronomy that one of the other professors uses. So as long as you're getting that book, you're, you're good, whether it says virtual campus or not. So, okay, so what we're going to do, and I'm just going to walk you through what you're going to do and then I have an answer sheet I'll give you for this to write your answers on, but I just want to walk you through a little bit about what you need to do on this one. You can skim through like the overview and the background and procedures. I'm going to go through what you need to actually do. The first example that we're going to use, you should have a little diagram there with a bunch of different, well, unfortunately I copied it black and white so it's not, they're not different colored lines as they are on here, but they're labeled with the different colors. And the first question is just asking you to look at this and for you to tell me what the wavelengths are. Okay, so I've given you a scale down here at the bottom in nanometers, which is one of the ones, one of the units scientists use for wavelengths. And you just look at the purple, the blue. Okay, let's look at the blue because it's between 4 and 500. I'm looking for your estimate. Is it 410? Is it 420? Is it 430? There, there's a right range. There's not a right or wrong answer for it. I'm not looking for a specific number. If you tell me that blue is at 400, I'd probably say you're wrong. It's definitely a little to one side of 400. If you tell me it's 450, I'd probably say you're wrong too, right? Because it's not halfway to the next number. 
But that's all I'm looking for is a rough estimate of it on the first. So the first question is just asking you to estimate where, where each of them are. Gets a little bit harder on the 700, like the infrared and the purple, because you don't have anything on that side. But just imagine, you know, 300 would be down about there. So you can get a good estimate. You're probably usually, well, I won't tell you what you're off because that's question two. Question two asks, what is the uncertainty in your answer? How far do you think you're off? So if you think blue is 420, do you think it's within 5 nanometers, 10 nanometers, 20? You know, how accurate? And again, there's not an exact right or wrong answer on it. If you tell me it's to within 50 nanometers, I'm going to hope you can figure it out closer than that because 50 nanometers on either side is pretty big. But you can get a rough idea how close do you think you're being able to measure them. You know? And it would be, you think about what you're trying to estimate. If you're thinking, well, is it 420 or 425 or 430, then maybe you're off by about 5. Right? Makes sense? I mean, does that make sense? That's all I'm looking for in this. What is the uncertainty? And I'm just looking for the general uncertainty in each one. For, for the whole thing, not for each. You don't have to tell me you're uncertain by so much in infrared, so much in red, so much in orange. Just one number. Just what is your uncertainty? And then a question as to how could you make your answers more precise. So what could you do to make them a little bit more precise? And then if you go on to the next section, we'll make them more precise. Now you'll need a ruler. And you're going to measure some of the distances. And I'm going to go back, let's see if I can get both of these on the screen. Okay. And you're going to measure the distances between blue and yellow. So you're going to measure that between blue and yellow. And you're going to measure the distance between yellow and red and the blue and red lines. Use centimeters or millimeters because those are the numbers I'm used to looking at when I'm grading. So don't, don't use the inch side, please. Makes it a lot easier for me to look at them. When I'm, gra when I'm grading, I know how close you were. And again, so you're measuring those three. So you're measuring the distances between those. And again, an uncertainty. When you're looking at this, you know, how far off do you think you're, you're getting? And look on the millimeter side. So if you're telling me your uncertainty is a centimeter, I'd say something's wrong. You should be able to measure it closer than a centimeter. You should be able to tell me that distance. When you get down into the millimeters or half a millimeter, then you're getting closer to what you think your, your errors might be. But you're measuring the distances between these in millimeters. So you're going to say, how many, say, five centimeters apart on my scale? Of course, I've blown it up a lot more. Yours is going, your scale is going to be significantly different on the piece of paper there. So that's part four. So one, two, three, four. Measure, the, measure them and include your uncertainty for each one. So this one, for each of these three, tell me plus or minus. So if you're going to tell me it's two centimeters or 2.5 centimeters plus or minus 0.1 centimeter. So you think that last digit is off by maybe, could be 2.4, maybe, so maybe 25 millimeters, maybe it's 24, maybe it's 26. And how accurate do you think it is? And that's what I'm looking for for each of those three. So measure and then estimate. Again, there's not an exact number for, for this. There's not an exact, exact number for this. There's a, there's a pretty good close range where I'm expecting you to be. Okay, so once you get that, then you have to take the distance in, you're going to determine a factor, a scale factor for these. And this is what you would eventually use if you wanted to go through in more detail and determine distances or scales on it. But you would look at, you're going to take the difference in wavelengths between two lines. So let's do the example as the blue and yellow line. So let's say 
Blue is 420 nanometers. What do you think yellow is? Roughly. 580. About 580. Probably a reasonable guess. Hey, you've got answers for a couple of them already. Or reasonably close answers at least. Okay, so that's the difference between them in nanometers. So that's the difference between those exact wavelengths. So if you subtract them, 580 minus 420. So the difference is 160 nanometers. Then you've got to measure them. You've got to measure what the distance is between blue and yellow. So you take your ruler and you've measured that, but you've already done it, right? You just did it here. And you told me they were, I'm just going to go with two. Actually, I'm going to go with 1.6 centimeters just to make it easy. But if we said their measured difference is, say, 1.6 centimeters, that one you're going to have to measure for yourself. That's probably not what you're going to get when you actually do it. If you are, I was very fortunate. Then all you're doing is dividing these two. So you'll get your difference for each of these pairs of lines. So for blue and yellow, you'll get how many nanometers they are apart, 160. That would be the actual wavelengths. We'll determine the scale. We need to know how far they are apart on your piece of paper, 1.6, and you just divide the two. So 160 nanometers divided by 1.6 meters or, or centimeters. What did I do? Centimeters? You could have done it in millimeters. You could do 16 millimeters. Maybe that's even easier. Show you the, do the calculation even easier. Same number. So say 16 millimeters. 160 divided by 16 is? And that's not the answer you should get because that's, ah, I didn't use the right measurement here. Those are good, but that one you're going to measure something a little bit different. And you're going to get three different values for this. Should they be exactly the same? Technically, yeah, but are they going to be? Most likely not. Most likely they'll vary a little bit because Maybe this should have been 410. Maybe it shouldn't have been 415. Maybe this was 1.8. Or maybe you measured it at 1.8 and he measures it at 1.7 and somebody else measures it at 1.75. So they're all going to vary a little bit, but you'll get, you should, everybody should get close to the same number. And then all you're doing there is taking that and then three different pairs and you add them up and divide by three. Now I should have said, I only have like one little calculator here and it's not even a scientific one. How many people have a calculator? Do we have a number, a good number? So a good number that we should have. I can get one more from downstairs if we need another one. So I have one more. Because you will need that for part of, the, part of the lab here. I can also pull up the, if you have the computers or if you have, you might want to have one on your, if you have one on your phone or something that you can use to do that. So you can use that for them as well. I can turn on the computers, there's a nice scientific calculator online as well. But that's all you need to do. That's part one. And part one is usually the one that gives people the most headaches when I do this, especially when I do it online and all they get is this paper and here, go do it. So the difference you get right now is you get me to explain it first. Okay, so you determine that and that's the end of part one. Part two is talking about two different things. Precision and accuracy. Accuracy is how close you are to where you want to be. Okay, so if it's accurate, you're getting close to the center of the target, right? 
That's accurate. Precision just means you're repeating. So maybe you're getting, the, you're getting the wrong answer, but you keep getting the wrong answer. So maybe there is something off with your measurements. You know, for example, here, are you very precise? You keep getting the same number, but it's way off the target. So we're just looking at you're, you're just looking to show there that you can tell me which of those have high accuracy and which have high precision. That's all it's asking. There's no measurements, no calculations, no nothing else to do there. Which ones are very accurate? Which ones are at the center of the target? Which ones are very precise? You can have both. You can be accurate and precise, and you can be neither. You might be neither accurate nor precise. Just depends on where the targets are happening to hit. But that's all that's asking for you is to give you a high or a low on those. Then the last ones. Scientific or significant figures. You've done significant figures before? Probably seen them at some point. Okay. The general rules are here. So there's some general rules for them. The non-zero digits are always significant. So if it's not a zero, it's definitely a significant number. The leading zeros are never significant. So if you got zeros before you get to a number, such as here, those are never significant. So those are not meaning, those are meaningless. Embedded zeros, which are between, are significant if there's another after it. Then it is significant. All zeros appearing to the right of an understood decimal point are significant. So if you have a decimal point, anything to the right, if you're putting 400.0, by writing the zero there, you're saying, by putting it down, you're saying it's significant. Otherwise, you just write 400. So if there's a decimal point there and you're going further to the right of it, as many zeros as you actually put there, those are significant. You can't just add zeros to the right randomly. And all digits to the left of an exponential are significant. So this, like here, 1.4 times 10 to the 11th, none of this part is considered significant. It's just the number before it. But everything you put there is considered significant. So what I'm asking you to do here is just tell me how many significant figures there are in each of these eight numbers using the rules that we've done. Okay? Makes sense? Questions? Feel free to jump out with questions. Then the, then the really favorite part, the actual calculations. There's a number of calculations for you to do here. And I said, if you don't have a scientific calculator, I'll see. I think I have one down in my office, at least I can grab it to share if someone does not have one that will work. But you're just going through these calculations and giving me an answer. The only thing you have to watch out is make sure when you get the answer, you look at how many significant figures are here in the numbers and use these rules for multiplication and division. For example, says the answer can contain no more significant figures than the input number with the least number of significant figures. So if you have 5, 6, and 6 significant figures, what can your answer have? 5. So your answer should only have 5 significant figures. And the same thing through the, through the rest of them. When you're adding or subtracting, you have to look at the first estimated digit. So for example, if I'm adding the number 5 and the number you know, 0.1, your answer is 5. Because the point with the five, there are already uncertainty in the 5. So that 0.1 doesn't do anything to it. It doesn't add anything or subtract anything from it. Bless you. Now, 
Does that make sense? That's all you need to do the calculations there, but just make sure, usually where people miss it is they just give me this long answer from their calculator, which is usually about this long. Bless you. You're allergic to astronomy, right? <laughs> you get the, don't give me this long answer from there, or you can write down the whole long answer and then give me the answer in however many significant figures if you, wanted, if you really want to write down all those numbers. But that, that's all I'm looking for in the lab. You should be able to get through that. We've got about, what, about a little over half an hour left. So you should be able to get through most of it. If there is any major issue, I will let you take them home. But if you can get them done and be done with them, then that's one less thing to worry about this weekend, so you don't have to worry about that. I do have an answer sheet I will be pass, I'll pass out for you. And that's what I'll need turned in. Normally on these labs, I will turn them in, do them as a group. I'll let you, you're welcome to work in groups, but at this one I do want individual answer sheets from this time. Often I will just give you one per group or table or however you want to do it and then just makes it easier to grade instead of grading. Because usually if you worked in a group, I end up seeing the same answer five or six times. So it makes it easier for me to grade it just looking at them once. And I do have rulers up front for you as well. There you go. All right, let me 